Good morning, everyone. Uh, our hostess, Frida, is on travel and business. So uh, we will be leading off ourselves. Uh, today, we are going to be discussing Parshas Hazinu and Yom Kippur. Obviously, Parshas Hazinu is very often the Shabbos right before Yom Kippur, as it is this year. And the title for today's class is confronting yeah, living the truth. Hang on, mute again. Okay, everybody still hear me okay? Okay, the title for today's class is Confronting and Living the Truth. This month, the month of Tishrei is again anonymously sponsored in the merit of this learning, meaning our class is learning, to bless our family, our children, and grandchildren with Torah learning. Ease of Shaduchim, Parnassah, good health, Shalom Bayis and Bracha for all the community, and Le'iloi Nishmas Yitzchak Ben Zasbin HaKohen, and Le'iloi Nishmas Rachel Bas Beryl. I can tell you, knowing this family, that they wish these blessings from the bottom of their hearts with great sincerity, not only to their families, but also to all the people that are learning and to all of Klal Yisrael. We could all use help with. Parnasa, Shidduchim, Shalom Bayis, Bracha, whether it's for ourselves personally, for people that we know. And also, we definitely want to wish um, that the Neshamos of Yitzchak ben Zaspin HaKohen and Rachel Basperel should truly have an aliyah in the merit of our learning, all the people listening, all the people that do listen uh, at other times, all the Torah that spreads because of it, and the benefits that come from this should be a true merit to their souls. As Yom Kippur is rapidly approaching, repentance is hopefully very much on our minds. In Hebrew, of course, the word for repentance is teshuva. We refer to these 10 days as the 10 days of teshuva or repentance. An obvious and key question regarding repentance is how can I make a fundamental shift that will truly cause me to both repent and to permanently change? As we know, in order for repentance to be meaningful, there are four steps. Number one, stopping or leaving the sin. In Hebrew, that's called azivas achet. Number two, regret, which we in Hebrew say as charata. Number three, admission of the wrongdoing, which we call vidui. And number four, finally, commitment to act differently in the future called kabbalah al ha'asid, a acceptance and acceptance on the future. So permanent change is a requirement of genuine repentance. With all of that in mind, we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing during these 10 days of repentance to ensure a permanent change? As an important background to our discussion today, here is a summary account of a relatively famous story about King David and a man called Naval and his wife, Naval's wife at that time, Avigail. The background to this story is as follows. After the death of the prophet Shmuel, a man by the name of Naval, who was of amazing great wealth and was also a man lacking and avoiding simple human de decency. So after the death of Shmuel, this great man who had wealth, but was also lacking in human decency, 
during the time, while virtually all the Jewish people were mourning the death of Shmuel, who died at age 52, by the way, this man, Novel, was planning a banquet. He was party planning. Now, his untimely end was due to an incident that took place while thousands of Novel's sheep were being shorn, which was a celebratory time and marked the conclusion of a profitable season. This name, Novel, means revulsion and disgust, while his wife's name, Abigail, means parent of joy. Avi, father, Gael, which is mirth or joy. And she herself was distinguished by her good nature, so her name fit her. There are opinions, by the way, that Novel was not this man's actual given name, but it's what everyone called him. Now, the death of Shmuel also occurred during a period when King Saul, Shaul, had learned and acknowledged that the future king would in fact be King David. At this point, King David was fleeing from Shaul with 600 of his followers. It's also important to point out that even though King Saul was the reigning king, because of the fact that King David, who was not yet officially the king, was destined to be king, could also be thought of and treated as a king. We're going to probably come back to that soon. So that's when the death of Shmuel happens. David, King David, was on the run from Shaul with 600 of his followers. Now, part of David's commitment to his followers, right, to his band of uh, soldiers or followers, was to provide them with their needs. King David knew of Naval's prosperity and asked him for a gift of food to provide to his own men. This was not a simple request for charity, as in fact, David and his men, David Melech and his men, had provided the shepherds of Naval with protection at no charge and in a generous manner. So when David sent his request to Naval, he instructed his men to begin their presentation or the request to Naval with a display of respect and good feeling. But unfortunately, his expectations were far too optimistic. King David's attendants came and spoke to Naval in the name of David. Naval replied kind of sarcastically and ironically, who is this David? Let's not forget that King David was the man who had slain the giant Gullius and had actually been given King Saul's daughter, Michal, with her hand in marriage. So King David was not quite unknown to the people. But nonetheless, Naval, wife of Abigail, says, who is this man, David? Should I take from my bread and my water and my meat to give to these men and to specifically David, about whose origin I do not know? Well, King David's response was ultimately to prepare about 400 of his men for attack and battle against Naval. 200 were going to stay and watch the remainder of King David's camp. At this juncture, the wife of Naval, Abigail, intervenes, and she had understood that they indeed, meaning Naval, Abigail, and their family, indeed owed gratitude to David and his men as they had protected her family and wealth. Abigail hurried and took 200 breads 
wine, cooked sheep, etc., etc., and secretly provided these provisions to David and his men, secretly we mean without her husband knowing. Additionally, when she met up with King David, she beseeched him to not set his heart against her base husband, Novel, for he is, as his name implies, meaning disgusting. That's what the word novel means, disgusting or repulsive. She asked for forgiveness. David responded to her that blessed is Hashem who sent you Avigail this day and has prevented me from harming you. Had you not hurried to come and meet me by morning's light, it would not have remained to novel as much as a dog. Meaning it would have been a total wipeout of novel and his family, etc. David accepted from Avigail the gift of food that she had brought to him. He said to her, go up in peace to your house. See that I have heeded your advice and I shall show you grace. When she returned home and she saw that her husband was having a feast, indeed a feast fit for a king, Novel's heart was very pleased about himself and he was very drunk. And she waited until he, Novel, was sober to tell him what she had done and what had taken place. When the next morning she told her husband, he was stunned. It happened after 10 days that Hashem struck him down and he died. When David heard what had happened, he blessed Hashem who had taken up for the cause of his own personal disgrace from the hand of Nabal and that Hashem prevented his servant David from wrongdoing and not harmed Nabal's family and that instead Hashem had returned Nabal's evil upon his own head. Well, no coincidences apparently. The rabbis say that these 10 days were indeed the 10 days of repentance. Yes, Eresime Teshuvah. So now that we have this story and we understand uh, the general gist of what happened, we have the following question. What is it about this story that truly represents the root message of the 10 days of repentance? This is one of the only incidents of Jewish history in where we have a reference to these 10 days, the 10 days of repentance, and specifically a story that sort of is supposed to be explaining to us what these days are all about. Should we not be focused on our own particular sins and confessing and repenting the process of teshuva? How do we learn the essence of repentance from this story? So interestingly enough, the word novel is not only the man's name in the story that we just presented, but in fact comes up several times in Parshas HaZinu, and we will be discussing two of them. In this parsha, at the beginning of the parsha, let me just get you the, the, the right uh, quote here. The first reference that we'll discuss is chapter 32, 32 sentence six. The background is, is that Moshe is admonishing the people by testifying against them as witnesses, the heavens and earth, and declaring that the heavens and the earth should listen because Hashem's teaching is like rain and it comes pouring upon the grass 
and that Moshe is calling out the name of Hashem. We're supposed to give praise to Hashem. And sentence four says that Hashem is perfect. All of his ways are just. God is perfect in his work. All of his ways are just. God is a trustworthy God. There is no iniquity. He is righteous and straight. Shiches lo, lo, banav muma. Destruction is not his, meaning evil does not belong to God. It's the blemish of his children. Meaning what happens that is bad is not attributable to Hashem. Instead, it's to his children, the Jewish people. Dor a twisted and wandering nation, uh, generation, I should say. Sentence six, which is uh, the exact quote, 32.6. To Hashem, will you attribute this as Moshe? Meaning, will you attribute wrongdoing to Hashem? Am naval velochacham, a nation that is naval, disgusting, velochacham, and not wise. Halohu avicha kanecha, is God not your father that owns you? That He made you, he established you, Rashi says, he gave us all different uh, tremendous people, the Kohanim, the Levim, the kings, the princes. Hashem established us as a nation. And who are we? What are we saying? We're attributing to God wrongdoing. We're not recognizing our own evil, says Rashi. Am naval. What does it mean, a nation that is naval? They forgot what God did for them. So how does Rashi translate naval? He doesn't merely say disgusting. He says it's a people that have forgotten what Hashem has done for them. And then he goes on to explain that, of course, Hashem is set us aside and made us elevated among the nations in the world and he established us. Okay, that's quote number one. Quote number two comes from chapter 32 in our parsha, sentence 21. And the Torah is describing how we have angered Hashem and Hashem has decided to respond with anger, so to speak, with the nations of the world and says the phrase that we want, the guy naval ach isein. That's the end of sentence twenty-one in chapter thirty-two. With a guy, a nation that is naval, I will anger the Jewish people. Says Rashi. What does it mean with a nation that is naval? I will anger the Jewish people. It means with meaning, with apostates, with heretics. That means ultimately that in our exile we will be given over to a people that are non-believers. And he quotes a sentence from Psalms that a person who is a naval in his heart, he says, there is no God. Right? A person who is naval in his heart, he says, there is no God. So here we have two references in the parsha, one of naval referring to the Jewish people and one of naval referring to the nations of the world. When it comes to the Jewish nation, Rashi says, what does the Jewish people description of Naval mean? It means that the Jewish people have forgotten that which was done for them. And as the context of that sentence uh, that we've explained describes, the Jewish people are saying that the wrongdoing belongs to Hashem. It's Hashem who has done wrong. And as Rashi explains, they are not remembering all the good that Hashem has done for them. And as the Pasuk says, that Hashem has established us and made us into a people. When it comes to the non-Jewish nation, 
that the Torah in our parasha references as a guy naval, that God is going to anger us with a guy naval. Over there, Rashi says, what does naval mean? It means a group of people that deny the existence of Hashem, and Hashem is going to give us over into those non-Jewish hands, people that deny Hashem. So obviously, we have two questions. Question number one is, why is the same word naval translated into two very different ways? In summary, the first one is translated as deniers of good, what we call kafoy tov, people who instead of recognizing good, deny good. That's what naval means. And in the second one, it means people who deny the existence of Hashem. So why are we translating it in two different ways? And then question number two is many actions of sin are disgusting. Why do these two categories, that of being ungrateful and that of denying the existence of Hashem, specifically get described with this word naval. We could talk about a murderer as a naval. We could talk about a person who is steeped in immorality as naval. Why is the Torah focusing to describe the either lack of appreciation that the Jewish people have in attributing wrongdoing to Hashem or the fact of certain people denying the existence of Hashem, why does that merit the term repulsive or disgusting as in the word naval? So those are our two questions in terms of the word naval in our parsha. So I'd like to begin by explaining what I think is at the core of what is a naval. And it really goes very deep to explain how people in general think about themselves and think about God. I've contended for quite a number of years now that all people instinctively know innately that no other explanation of existence is explicable without a God concept. Today, there are even many scientists who will admit that. Nobody can explain where the first Adam came from. And the only possible is explanation is a being that doesn't come from anywhere, the being that is everything that we call the one God. I'm suggesting that all people on some very visceral level know that to be true, and that indeed no explanation of existence can make sense without that. Nonetheless, as we know, even in today's world, we're probably we're close to 8 billion people already, we have the fact that half of the world claims some form of monotheism between the Christians and the Muslims, the Jewish people are a very, very tiny percentage of that. And the rest of the world is all over the map. Uh, most of them nowhere close to accepting the truth of one God. Why do people, in today's terms, why do 4 billion plus people actually deny the existence of God, if I'm correct, that on some innate deep level, people know that God exists? The answer is simple. People seek to deny the existence of God, of Hashem, in order to give themselves license to act according to their whims and even wantonly. That's the reality. So what the Torah is telling us here, and the reason that the word naval is appropriately, appropriately used to describe apostasy, a person that is a heretic, is because the fundamental reason why a person will actually choose to deny when they know otherwise regarding the existence of Hashem is in order that they can 
give themselves permission to act in whatever disgusting way they want. Now, there's really two major implications what the word naval means in this context. Number one, it gives them a sense of entitlement to act in a disgusting way and to rationalize that there's nothing wrong with it. And number two, it's a disgusting thing to deny all the good that was done for them. That itself is disgusting. Forget about the fact that it leads to disgusting activity. We can all relate to this, whether it's what we've done for our children or when a friend has done us a favor, how disgusting, how awful is it to simply ignore good that was done for us and not to appreciate it. The natural human instinct is the opposite. So the fact that a person will choose to deny what is true in order to allow themselves to not feel beholden, to not feel appreciation, that itself is disgusting. But the next step is that it gives a person to act without regard to what is truly right and truly wrong. So a person can become a naval, a disgusting person. What's interesting is that when we discuss the 4 billion people in the world that have no connection to the concept of admitting the truth of one God, we have also 4 billion people in the world, we're obviously talking in rough numbers, that admit the truth of one God. So I think it's important to understand that when it comes to Christianity or it comes to Islam, there are really two types of people, right? So we have the non-Jews that are kind of clearly idolatry. They reject the one God concept because it allows them to decide and control power structures, including bargaining and demanding. That's idolatry in general. And that's one half of the almost 8 billion people of the world. And then you have the other half, which are quote unquote, claiming monotheism. But even while many of those non-Jews claim monotheism, they very often are using religion as a means of power and control of the masses. Now, I'm not here to cast aspersions on any particular non-Jewish people. I happen to know some very lovely pastors in Pennsylvania, retired pastors, and many, many good people that are not Jewish, that do claim monotheism and tend towards being selfless rather than selfish. But it's also true that if it wouldn't be for the fact that very often religion in the name of monotheism, whether it be Islam or Christianity, if it wouldn't be true that it was often used as a means of either controlling people or power grabbing, we would not have had the various intifadas, inquisition, crusades that we have experienced. And the point is that it's not enough to actually know that there's a creator. We have to be listening to the rules that the creator writes, not the ones that sometimes we give ourselves license to write in his name. And that's, of course, where Judaism shines. We are the people of the book because we are endlessly pursuing the truths of what Hashem has written, not what we, some select group, within a social structure claiming to know what God means and nobody else has access. We encourage every Jewish person to study and make learning a part of their lives. So the point is, is that being monotheistic can also be abused. And as we know, Jews also struggle, unfortunately and tragically, with their own recognition of the truth of God's existence. Nonetheless, typically, 
most affiliated Jewish people do not have the stupidity or the temerity to, not, to deny the existence of Hashem, but they nonetheless may have foolishness to claim doubts or rationalize that God is not always fully in charge, or worse, blame God for many evils that exist in the world, as well as forget the gifts of Hashem from the past and the present. How many people today will still, I'm talking about even affiliated Jewish people, will still claim, oh, you know, God has done this wrong in the world and that wrong in the world, and my life is not as good as it should be. You know, God is not uh, really paying attention, whatever they're going to claim, while they're ignoring the unbelievable gift of the land of Israel, the security and the feeling of being able to hold up our heads high because of the existence of the country and state of Israel that we enjoy today. So many of us Jews also will fall into forms of denying the goodness of Hashem. And therefore, all of these above forms of rejecting God, his oneness, or the history of the Jewish people, and the goodness that he's done for the world and for us, ultimately comes to reject and deny the destiny and the purpose of the world. Which is why right after this sentence that I just mentioned, where the Jewish people themselves are attributing wrongdoing to God, or forgetting that God has established us as a nation, and we're called an Am Naval, the Torah says, remember the days of old. Go back and review the history. Ask your father, your elders. When Hashem distributed the world and he set up the Jewish people, reminding us of the Tower of Bavel and the flood and Avraham, our forefathers, and ultimately God's special covenants with us, all of this, how we became the Jewish nation, is supposed to remind us why we are not supposed to be deniers of the goodness of Hashem, because that's just a way of rationalizing our bad behaviors. When it comes to the non-Jewish people of the world, they are called novel, not because of their focus on denying the goodness from Hashem. They go to a much more core and fundamental rejection of the existence of God. And over there, says Rashi, what is a guy novel? The guy Navalach, he's saying, what does that mean? It means that the non-Jewish, you know, uh, power grabbers of the world ultimately will claim God doesn't even exist. The idolaters of the world, that's what they claim. The true depth of denying goodness, whether it be in relation to Hashem or in relation to our fellow man, is that it gives us permission to act without responsibility and without being beholden to the other. Number one, this is disgusting. Number two, this allows a person to lose their human distance, decency and live as a disgusting creature as the story of Naval was describing. Let's just look at that story. Not only did Naval say, no, I'm not going to give King David and his followers food and provisions which they deserve to have as a compensation and a recognition of the good the protection that King David did to provide for Naval and his family. But he went to have his own party. He treated himself like a king. And on the day that King David was coming really to attack him, without Abigail's intervention, he was drunk in his own wealth and lost in his own world on top of denying the good that he owed to King David. 
And what's amazing about the story is that it's not only explaining to us that at the root of sin is denying the goodness of Hashem, it also shows us that the opposite of disgusting behavior is not just admitting that Hashem exists, it's living life with joy. The word Avigail, the wife of Naval, it doesn't just say that she was a nice person or that she was a decent person, she was a joy-filled person. The father of Gil, the father of rejoicing. Why? Because when we truly appreciate that God is interested in our good, and we know that he cares for us, and that we are the reasons for our suffering, whether it's our generation or earlier generations, as we say countless times in our in our vidui and our prayers in the 10 days of repentance, we're recognizing the responsibility that we have, then we can realize that Hashem really loves us. He really cares for us. He really wants what's good for us. It's only when we deny that he actually cares for us that then we have to make claims that we don't owe him, that we're entitled to act or attribute the bad that is happening to us as a product of his actions and not our action. So instead of, as the Torah says, Instead, we say, God, it's your fault that we're suffering. That's all a product of our rejection. But when we do the opposite, we see God as our benevolent benefactor who established us as a nation, who wants only that which is good for us. And we begin to see the good in our lives. So many people have the fundamental flaw of what we call in America, keeping up with the Joneses. Instead of people focusing on the good that they have, the family that they have, the blessings and opportunities that Hashem has given them in their lives, they focus on, oh, I don't have the 600 foot yacht. I don't have my private helicopter. I don't have so many things that so many other people have. That's the opposite of understanding the good that Hashem is trying to provide for us in our lives, not only materially, of course, but also spiritually, the way that he gives us chances to develop ourselves and to grow. So the opposite of Naval, which, by the way, is not only a disgusting person, the, the Torah in the, in the prophets really tells us that his heart was made of stone. When he denied the good that that uh, David had did, done for him and didn't want to give to him, his heart became stone. He became like a dead person inside. That's the depression. That's the unhappiness of people that deny the good that is done for them. The opposite of that is the gil, is the rejoicing as represented by Abigail. And as she herself says to King David, listen, as much as he's rejecting you, King David, and he's denying goodness, he's become a disgusting person. Don't hold it against him in the sense of attacking him and killing him. Unfortunately, that's who he's become. So instead of just killing him, let him be. King David listens to her, but it's no wonder that ultimately King David takes Abigail herself as a wife for himself, for King David. When a person lives life with the recognition of all the good that has been done for them, both by Hashem and by their fellow man, they are actually filled with a tremendous sense of being loved and cared for, and therefore not alone, and ultimately, they have a feeling of security. They know that God cares for them. They know that others care for them. Additionally, is the fact that a person can live joyously with the knowledge that Hashem is truly looking to give them good and that existence is meant to be a blissful experience. 
So why is this the epitome of the 10 days of repentance? How does this lead to the four steps of repentance? As we mentioned above, leaving the sin, confessing, regret, confessing, and ultimately committing to be permanently different? The answer is simple. If we understand that if we focus on Hashem as our benefactor and as the one that's trying to do good for us individually and, of course, collectively for us as a Jewish people, instead of denying not only the goodness that Hashem does, but that the Torah is good for us and that the ways that Hashem is prescribing for us to live is the best way for us to live and that actually protects us and helps us, then we can truly become filled with joy. And of course, we will admit that what we've done wrong is wrong. Of course, we will say to ourselves, this is not a good way to live. Do I wanna be a disgusting person that's dead inside and ultimately lose all human decency? Or do I wanna be a person of dignity? Do I wanna be a person that has joy in my heart and recognize the good and the love that Hashem has done and constantly does? for me. That will lead us to the natural process of leaving the sin, regretting what we've done wrong, recognizing that we are hurting our, ourselves. Hashem doesn't do anything to us. It's just something that we cause to ourselves, whether us personally or our history. And then we will have the uh, ability to fully admit to Hashem what we've done wrong and commit to being different in the future. So a fundamental way to work on permanent change is to change the perspective of how we think of Hashem, to change the permission we give to ourselves to deny either the good that Hashem does for us or to deny that the bad that happens is really from Hashem and instead say, no, it's not the bad that happens from Hashem, but rather what we've done, then we can begin to make a permanent change and really embrace happily all of the obligations and instructions of the Torah because it's what's good for us. So Parshas HaZinu, which is nearly the conclusion of the Torah, is the foundational summary of the Torah. The truth of Hashem's existence is apparent if we simply confront the truth of human and Jewish history and that all evil that exists is because of man, not Hashem. I think that's a very small decent encapsulation of some of the fundamentals of Hazinu. But it's also a song. Hazinu is called a Shira because this recognition needs to be integrated into us like a song, like music. It lives within us joyously and because it also allows us to live a joy-filled existence. So it's a song because we're taking it on, memorizing it, putting it into our hearts. It's giving us a, so to speak, inner bounce, but also we end up living joyously like with song, which is why many, many, many of our prayers are about the future that we will sing, Shir Hamalos, that we say at the end of benching is all about the future singing that we will do. Tehillim means praises and ultimately is the singing of Hashem. And that's also another very good parallel from the story of King David. We'll be wrapping this up in a minute. What I believe some of the subtext of that story is that King David coming into his own monarchy and reigning as king was done mostly by the people choosing to recognize that King David was the rightful king. 
God also does not impose his kingship over us. He wants us to learn on our own to choose and to recognize it. And King David sent this request to Naval. It's a great parable for God saying, hey, you guys want to repent? You remember from Rosh Hashanah that I'm really king. Maybe it's time for you to recognize the truth of the monarchy and that the rules of the kingdom are there for you. I'm just here trying to protect you. I'm just here trying to help you, as King David did for Naval. And we have the reaction of Naval, where he, his heart turned to stone, and he ended up dying at the end of the 10 days of repentance. And then we have the reaction of his wife, Abigail, who actually became a queen and part of the monarchy. So in conclusion, a simple formula to know, I, I really believe this, and I think it's very useful, a simple formula to know if we have truly repented and broken free of our sometimes denial of the recognition of Hashem's goodness is, are we looking at what we don't have in our lives and all the things that are wrong and therefore we're sometimes down and depressed and cynical? Or instead, are we filled with a sense of happiness and joy and excitement about all the good that our lives have to offer. Questions and comments. Thanks, Akiva. See you no, well, we see you next week or not? Yes, yes. God willing, yes, next week. Yes. Okay, good. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Okay, Same to everybody. Thank you. No. No. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, a question in the room is maybe we should be reading the story of Naval as the Haftorah. Instead, we read a different song when Hashem saved David from his enemies, including from the hand of Shaul. So that's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Um, any other questions or comments today? Uh, another question here. Naval really Right. Yeah. So, so uh, Rabbi Begelman is pointing out is that Novel himself is really rejecting the goodness that was done for him, and he's also re rejecting the monarchy of of David Malik. So he actually fulfills both of Rashi's criterion that a Novel could either be a person denying goodness or a person who denies the existence of Hashem. Excellent. Anyone else? We're good today. Okay. So uh, in a few minutes, I believe my father will begin. Wishing everybody a Gemar Chasim Matova. Everybody should have not only an easy and meaningful Yom Kippur, but also find the path to repentance uh, to be one that's inviting and uh, easy to perform and ultimately live a life of joy. Ah. Uh, we're getting one question here before we conclude. Um, somebody is asking that it's not so difficult to be grateful for the good, but what about dealing with the bad? So I'll, I'll mention the answer that uh, I um, propose to this question. And it's a, it's a variation of why do bad things happen to good people? How are we supposed to deal with the fact that bad things do happen? It's hard always to say, well, it's my fault that the bad things happen. You know, we see terrible tragedies in life. And it's hard to attribute it to either our sins or to our ancestor sins. You know, it's very, very difficult 
uh, to live life with that kind of, of perspective and just always say that the bad that happens is because of uh, evil that was done and is thus deserved because very often difficult to see the deserving of that evil. So what I say to that is really um, twofold. Number one, we have to remember that this world really is only temporary. And as much as we attribute so much significance to it and we become completely attached to wanting to live and to being afraid of death and to wanting uh, even the good things in life that are not uh, just purely physical, we become very attached to that. And we tend to forget that the ultimate real living and real existence is not this world. So that's understandable that it feels so desperately important to us, but it really is only important because of the means that it serves to a much better and ultimate future. Number two is that in the process of experiencing bad, we have tremendous opportunity to shift and change ourselves for the good. Part of dealing with the bad is always how we respond to it and how we change better because of it. My father has many times said many stories um, that I've heard that people that he knows personally that went through extremely difficult tests, including terminal illness, and how they were able to see how it changed their life for the better and that it improved all their relationships and that because of that, they lived at a much higher plane of existence. Now, I'm not, God forbid, saying that's why it's happening. But when we look for that kind of good within the bad, it does also become much easier to accept that there is something positive that we're growing from that's really critically important. But know that we can't ever explain the particulars of why bad things happen. All we can do is understand that this is not the ultimate form of existence. I know it's uh, never easy for anybody who's experiencing this kind of pain, uh, but I think, you know, we could elaborate more on this another time, but this, this is, I think, really uh, some, these are some of the critical pieces. Anyone else? Are we good for today? Okay. Thank you, Rabbi Kiva. Thank you all. Thank you, Rabbi.